in my morning devotion several days ago, I, I was reading in the book of Exodus, having just started the, the year in Genesis. And I read Exodus 3, verses 4 and 5. And that says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. This is, this is the burning bush that Moses went to look at. Moses, Moses, he called. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I thought about that. Why did Moses have to take his shoes off? Why was it? And the reason was that the ground was holy. God had said that. The place where he was standing was holy ground. Well, what was it about the ground that made it holy? And the fact was that it was the presence of God himself that made the ground holy. And then later we see in the tabernacle and in the temple, in the in the Holy of Holies, it was the presence of God himself that made those places holy. That was the place where God was present. And I believe it's a general principle that God is present only in holy places. Now the word holiness means set apart. It means set apart to God. Well, what's it set apart from? And it's set apart from the things that are not to God. And as I as I thought about this this more, I came across a just a helpful de- a helpful practical illustration or definition of what holiness is. Holiness for each of us is being the person that God wants us to be. It's doing the things that God wants us to do. It's doing those things the way God wants them done. And it's doing those things when God wants them done. So I wanted us to look this morning at, uh, at those, those first two issues. You know, we have, uh, I have here a, a, uh, a pen. Now it's a pretty good pen, it writes fairly well, just like you'd expect a pen would. But there have been times when I've needed to change the date on my watch. <laughs> and you know that little button there, you, you hit it with the pen. And, uh, there have been a couple of times when the button's been hard to press, and I've had a felt pen. And what that's done, because I've been using the pen for a purpose that it was not intended or designed, that has not only not worked in correcting the time on my watch, but it's ruined the pen for the purpose for which it was intended. And that's what holiness is for each of us in being the person God wants us to be, doing the things God wants us to do, is that if we're not that, because God is our creator and our designer, then it not only ruins us for what God wants us to be, but it makes us ineffective in the things that we think we want to be doing. I'd like us to read together 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. We'll start at verse 5. You also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were designed for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him 
who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I just want to reread verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There are two little phrases there you might be able to pick out. You are that you may. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 in the Phillips says, God not only loves you, but has chosen you for a special purpose. God not only wants us to know him, he wants us to be part of his plan of salvation in the rest of the world knowing him. I want to uh, think about credibility for a moment. Credibility is, is the fact of being what God wants us to be, or it's being what we say we are. It's no distinction between the way we present ourselves in the world and the way we actually are. You know, as Sherry mentioned in, in preparing this lesson, these are, these are things we've had to search our own heart on as we talk through them. They're, they're issues that are current for us. Because, you know, I don't want to stand up here and say something that just isn't relevant to us or something that we're not dealing with or have had to deal with. But we're all together. We're all sons and daughters of God. There's no grandchildren in the kingdom of heaven. We're all his children and we, we have the ability to learn from one another and God has intended that we do that. So credibility or consistency means to become in my life what God has already done in my heart. Well, we might ask, why did God set apart a people for himself? Why would the holy people reach out? Why would the holy God reach out to sinful people? Firstly, God loves us. Even in our rebellion and sin, our total disregard of God and his standards, God loves us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Secondly, God desires fellowship with us. And it's eternal. Matthew 18.20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in his name, God is there in the midst of them. So when we gather in Jesus' name, we have the presence of God. What a wonderful truth. <laughs> God wants to bless us with the knowledge of himself. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know me and believe that I am he. Why does God want us to witness? He wants to witness so that we get to know him. And what he's doing is he's revealing himself to the world. So Certainly that's part of the process as other people come into the kingdom of God and that's just wonderful. But God's prime objective is that we get to know him. And again in that verse we see those two phrases, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. We are that we, we may, we're created for a special purpose. And God wants others to know him. In 2 Peter 3.9 the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we, we take a few verses like that and we get some insight into God's love. But God's love is real. It's, it's all-encompassing. It's, it's hardcore. It's, it's factual. It's expensive. It cost him his only son. It doesn't look for a response or self-gratification. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 to 7.
Sherry will be coming back to this passage later. But if we could just read it, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the way God loves us. Ephesians 5 tells us that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Do I love my wife as much as Christ loved the church? Is it possible for me to love my wife too much? Well, until I've died for my wife, then there's still a ways to go. Because that's what Christ did. This is the love of God. Now, if we say that that we're God's people, and we don't have on our heart what God has on his heart, then we don't have this matter of credibility. See, this is what God's doing in the world. Is he's, he loves the world. And if we allow anything in our heart or life to come between us and what God is doing in the world, then we can't, we can't claim to love the world. And we find ourselves out of step with what God is doing. How can we love God when we, we hate our brother? How can we claim to love God when we're, when we're holding resentment or there's pride in our heart? We're just out of fellowship with God. And because of God's love for us, he'll call us to account on that. He, he won't let us go. And we praise him for that. Love is that attribute of God that governs the way he relates to all his creation. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. In the RSV, the Bible puts that a different way. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I believe if God's love were removed for even a moment, we would be consumed. That's what that verse says. God sustains us constantly. His love is there. Well, what does this love of God look like in us? How can we tell if we're really operating in the love of God? 1 Timothy 1.5 helps us with that. And this is our key verse this morning. That says, the aim of our charge is love, which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. It's not other things. The aim of our charge is not service for the Lord in a foreign country. The aim of our charge is not building the biggest Sunday school class we can this week, this, this year. The aim of our charge is not our agendas. The aim of our charge is what God says is to be the aim of our charge. And the aim of our charge is love that issues from these three things, from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Let's look at each of these in turn. Firstly, a pure heart. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Notice the relationship between heart and hands. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The two go very, they're they're just hand in hand. The problem with the pure heart that we read about first in the scriptures is the problem of idolatry. An idol is anything in our life that replaces God 
as an object of our devotion or of our service. Anything that we place above God in our order of priorities. See, we might need to examine our life in retrospect on this issue. If we take the last 12 months and we say, what have I done with this 12 months? How does that match up with scripture? Am I doing the right things? And I just part of our time in the US is for me to examine my business back in Australia and the fact that it's just consuming more time and energy than I really wanted to have. So I have to have a good, hard, close look at it and say, do I really want to give this much of my life to the matter of, of making money? Because a job is a means to a life. That's all it is. It's, it's just a means. It's not life. It's not a livelihood. And it needs to be kept in that context. And if it spills over and it's taking more time, then I just need to look at it. And God will help me with that process. So idols can be things that we find that we're serving by default. You know, we find ourselves in a position where we're having to serve something and and we just haven't taken the steps to deal with it and put it back in its right priority. Idols can be material things. Idols can be a, a career. Any consuming goal can be an idol. Sports can be an idol. Something that just just takes takes our worship away from God. Another person can be an idol. We can look at somebody and say, oh, if I could only be like that person. But what we need to say is, oh, if I could only be like Jesus. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, we we read the phrase, swear by what is false. And we need to trust in the truth. And we need to make sure that that what we're putting our trust and our faith and our hope in is rock-solid foundation. It's the Word of God. Because it is truth. And we, we often don't have the ability to discern between stages of falsehood. But so long as we're founded in the Word of God, we're on solid ground. Psalm 118 verse 9 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There are times I can see in my life when I've trusted in princes. One of those, I remember going to a doctor. Not that It's, it's just that my, my faith was in the wrong place. I went to the doctor for healing, but my trust should have been in the Lord. So I need to watch that when I, when I, I go to people, professional people for help, my trust is in the Lord. And I ask them for their help. Or in politicians. You know, if we put our trust in politicians, these are the people that are princes. They're, they're people that, are, that can be elevated and take the place of Christ in our heart. So we need to trust in the Lord, not in princes. Princes are the heroes of this world. Trust in the one who is true, not in false things. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 5 says, trust in the Lord and do good, so you will dwell in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. The plain fact is that God is is more willing to bless us than we are to be blessed. And if we really if we really wanted to be blessed, then we would continue to trust in the Lord with unwavering faith. The aim of our charge is love, which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. When we invite Christ into our life, we have a pure heart. John 15.3 says, You are made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. When we invite Jesus Christ into our heart through prayer, we're cleansed of all unrighteousness. We have a clean heart. We don't need to carry any guilt. Satan will try to to club us with things from the past, but we just say, Jesus died for that. It's under the blood of the Lamb. It's gone. We will all struggle with that, but we have we have complete cleansing in Jesus.
We need to keep our heart pure. Psalm 119 verse 9 and 11 says, The word of wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. It's God's word that keeps us from sinning against him and if we can develop the, the practice of hiding it in our heart, of memorising verses of scripture that really give us guidance and help, then we have them all the time. When we're at work, whatever we're doing, we, we have the word of God in our heart and it's there available for us to use, for the Holy Spirit to bring to mind. There are three things to be aware of. The lust of the flesh, which is, that's our appetite, the desire to consume. First John 2:15 and 16 speaks of these things. That verse has just slipped my memory. Let me look it up here. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust, the, the craving of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he, do, he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. There are three things mentioned there. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. We need, we need to surrender these things to God. We need to surrender our appetites, our desire to consume the lust of the flesh. We need to surrender the lust of our eyes, the desire to possess. We need to surrender the pride of life, the desire to control. Because these things are of the world and they'll, they'll stop our harmony in our living relationship with Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Our heart is, our heart is what we have in life. It's the thing that is, is most valuable to us. And yet we're tempted by Satan to sell it out. We were reading recently about Esau and the way he sold out his spiritual birthright, the promise of Abraham. He sold out for a single ball of pottage. And we face that temptation. We need to be available for God to use. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21 says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, wickedness, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. If we want God to use us the way, the way that he wants to use us, then we need to keep ourselves clean. Right now in Australia, well, in fact, when we left, it was about 112 degrees on the way to the airport. <laughs> I had a long sleeve shirt on and I wish I didn't have to wear that. And then we got out of Denver and it was, it was minus five. <laughs> well, back in Australia, this, this sort of weather, you come in after working in the garden and you're just parched. You know, your throat is dry and, and, and you just really need a drink of water. So imagine the situation that I go to the cupboard and here in front of me, uh, in the cupboard are two glasses. One of them is a nice cut crystal glass just a beautiful glass. The other one's an old peanut butter jar with still some of the wrapper left on the outside. And I look closely at these and the cut crystal glass has got a bit of lipstick at the top and a smudge on the side and, and as I start to get it down there's a dead fly inside. But as I look at the peanut butter jar it, it's clean. It's just a peanut butter jar but it's clean. Now which one will I use to get a drink of water? <laughs> which one will God use? Will he use the, the polished, sharp, cut crystal glass that's not clean? Or will he use the vessel that's available for him to use?
a good conscience. The aim of our charge is love, which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. God has given each of us a conscience for our protection. But if we persistently disregard it, it becomes numb and ceases to bother us. It's possible for us to press on past our conscience and then it won't bother us. And pretty soon we don't have a conscience. I read the story of Bob Bundy, the serial killer that was executed here in the USA. And he told the story of how he started with pornographic magazines. And he just went through it. He described a a progression where the limit of his conscience just got further and further and further until he was murdering people and it just didn't bother him. He knew it was wrong and he shouldn't be doing it, but his conscience had ceased to bother him. Now God has given us a conscience so that we will, so that we will see when we're going the wrong direction and we need to be sensitive to our conscience. If we don't, the result of that is grieving the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 29.1 says, A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Some occupations a Christian can't do. I met a fellow that had uh, he'd only been a Christian about two or three weeks in Australia and he just told me that he'd bought a, uh, a racehorse betting agency. It, it's a, an off-course system in Australia where you can go and put bet money on horses. And uh, he had just bought an agency and put a lot of money into it. And uh, he was asking me about it, and I said, well, you, you need to pray if God really wants you to do that or not. Then I didn't see him. I only, I only just met him in passing at a conference we were at. And I didn't see him till about a year later. And I asked him how it was going. And he said, well, things are, he was really struggling in his Christian life. And then I asked him about the agency and he had not been willing to give it up. And and he was wrestling with the tension because God was working in his conscience in this area of the betting agency, yet he was not willing to surrender that. And he knew that he shouldn't be in that, that it wasn't glorifying to the Lord, but he just wasn't willing to give it up. And we face that. There's things that we can just hang on to that we're not willing to give up. And these are things that are that can be matters of the heart. You know, there can be bitterness. Bitterness has to do with with something we've experienced, whether it's you know it, it may be real or it may be imaginary, where we feel that someone has done us wrong, and so we harbour this bitterness and we feel it's justified because of the circumstances. Yet it bothers our conscience and it's, it stops God working in us. It really hinders the Holy Spirit working in our lives and and allowing us to become a clean vessel that's fit for the Master's use. And anger, or it can be it can be an offence that we have one with another, that we're just not willing to go and, and in humility confess to them if we've offended them or if they've offended us. We'll talk a little about that in just a moment. So we need to constantly ask ourselves, is God saying something to our conscience? See, this is the love which issues from a pure conscience. If we don't have a pure conscience, then we can't experience God's love in the way that he wants us to experience it to the full. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Certain persons by neglecting conscience have made shipwreck of their faith. If we don't listen to conscience, our faith can be shipwrecked. That's what that verse says. Our faith can be shipwrecked. Do I exercise myself to have always a conscience? Void of offence toward God and toward man. Paul exercised himself. He worked very hard to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward man. So he reviewed his life. He thought about what he was doing. And if it was something where he defended God, then he confessed it according to 1 John 1.9. If it was something with men, then he, he took it it sorted it out. Matthew five twenty three and 24 tells us about that situation. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. That verse says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother, 
then come and offer your gift. See, how can we be praying in the presence of a holy God and have this sin in our heart of something that where we've offended offended our brother? We're, we're just not living the way God is. First go be reconciled to your brother. Matthew 18.15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So it doesn't matter, whatever the situation, whether someone has offended us or whether we have offended somebody else, the ball is always in our court. God says, my relationship is with you personally and I want personal holiness. So it's always up to us. See, as we think in terms of a church, we're members of one another. Each one of us is part of the church, and each one is an essential part of the church, and each one is uh, is a capable and important part of the church. But let's assume that you have a body, and it's a body that's got a bad foot. Then in that same body, there's a, you know there's a hand that doesn't work properly, and then there's an ear that doesn't hear properly, and then there's a nose that's broken. You know, pretty soon you've got a body that can't function at all. So when we when we think in terms of what we want to accomplish as a church of believers, it comes right back down to who am I personally in my relationship with God, and my my prime responsibility, both to God and to the body, is that my relationship with Him is right. God simply cannot coexist with sin. He is holy. Psalm 66.18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We, we can't pray. God won't hear us when we pray if we regard iniquity in our heart. In fact, it's of his mercies that he doesn't consume us. But he, he just can't coexist with sin. Point four, the next, the next point is to do it now. James 1.22. So we have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward sin, and we do it now. When, when God pricks our conscience and says, I, he said, uh oh, there's, there's something wrong here. I've got to sort it out. We need to do it now. Because if we let it go on, then we'll forget it. Satan will have the victory. We'll be ineffective. It won't come up again until the next time we're on our knees and the Holy Spirit brings it to mind again and we've lost that time. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we don't do the word of God, we deceive ourselves. And what Satan will try to do is, is to allow something to happen that's, that's just small enough that he can say to us, Oh, you don't need to worry about that. You know, that, that won't be a problem. But it's, it's not big enough that it, it really gets on us. <laughs> you know, if we stole something from a supermarket, we, we'd recognize that as definite sin. But when it's just something small, then that's when Satan clubs us with it. He renders us just as ineffective, yet, yet we, we're just not as aware of it to deal with it. I had a meeting while we were in Colorado Springs a couple of weeks ago. I had a meeting with a fellow that's involved in some Christian work overseas. And uh, he picked me up in the car, and we went to we went to a restaurant for breakfast. And I'd, I'd had some chewing gum in my mouth, and he'd gone in ahead of me, and I I couldn't see a place to put it, so I just spat it into the gutter. And I went inside, and we started our meeting, and and this was really on my mind, you know, that I'd done this. And he was talking, and I I just couldn't hear what he was saying. <laughs> I'm thinking about this chewing gum that I spat in the gutter outside, and. So I said to him, Charlie, would you excuse me a minute? There's something I have to take care of. So I, I took a napkin off the table and went outside and picked up the chewing gum and brought it back and put it in the receptacle and, and I was free to continue with the rest of the meeting. And it's the smallest thing. And Satan says, oh, you couldn't have done anything else. There wasn't any receptacles around. But God says, that's littering and that's sin. You know it is. And you've got to deal with it and get it right. 
And I had to do that. As we deal with having a clear conscience, we can expect God's help in this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Now that's not right. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And what God's promising us in that verse is that there's nothing that will come our way that, that is more than we can handle. There's no temptation that's more than we can handle. There's no pressure that's more than we can handle. There's no financial pressure that's more than we can handle. God is in sovereign control of the circumstances. And it's because of his faithfulness that there's nothing that's more than we can endure. And he promises in that verse that because of his faithfulness, he will also provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. I was I was working at the University of New South Wales on the campus and I was meeting with some fellows as we were doing in the ministry there, just one-on-one. And I was meeting with a fellow named David and we just finished some Bible study on this very subject. And he came in quite upset and he told me that he'd stolen some camera equipment. And uh, he thought if he worked there at the university and he thought if he went and told his boss that he'd stolen this equipment that he'd be fired. And he was a disabled fellow, so he thought that meant that he wouldn't have much of a chance of getting another job. So we prayed about this, and he was caught in this tension. If I do this, then I'm going to lose my job, yet I believe what God wants me to have a clear conscience. What am I going to do? So we prayed, and we looked at the Word of God, and the Word of God says to do it. So he did. He uh, plucked up his courage, he went to his boss, and he said, I'm sorry, I've stolen this camera equipment. Here it is all back. And he gave an account of when he'd taken it and that, that he told him that it was all there, that he'd returned it all. And his boss was just astounded that someone would do this. So his boss asked him, why are you doing this? He said, well, I, I believe in Jesus Christ and the way he wants me to live. And I believe God would, would have me set this right in my life. And uh, his boss forgave him. Not only that, he was promoted because his boss wanted a man of this integrity having more responsibility. So we can expect God's help. When we take a step of faith to put what to put something in our life that's wrong, when we take a step to put it right, we can count on God's help because of his faithfulness to us. The aim of our charge is love which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. I heard a story of a family that had been to church and they were on the way home and there was mum and dad and the son and daughter in the back seat. And dad was saying, oh, I don't know. You know, if we don't get a better preacher, it's, it's a wonder no, anyone goes to church. You know, his, his message just wasn't all that exciting. And then his wife tuned in and said, uh, well, the choir was a bit off colour too. You know, those sort of drab songs and uh, they were singing a bit out of key. And then in the back seat, the daughter pipes in and she said, well, I thought I thought the seats were pretty uncomfortable. You know, if, if they want us to go, they probably should do something about making the seats more comfortable. Anyway, all this time, the son had been quiet. So father said, well, Bobby, what do you think? And he said, well, I thought it was a pretty good show for a dime. Sincere faith. The sad part of that story is that that's what church is to a lot of people. In Australia, in the US, I, I guess, in all around the world, we're caught in insincere faith. Jesus rebuked the Jews both for their hypocrisy and their unbelief. Both of these things are insincere faith. Matthew 6.1, the Bible says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, 
to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. No reward from your Father in heaven. Can you imagine the tragedy of of being in a church, running the youth group, doing a whole lot of things, getting to the end of your life, and God says, reward, zero. No reward because you did your acts of righteousness to be seen by men. If you do, sorry, the need to be men and women of integrity is what we have in the church. We need to be men and women that are really serving God. And then when difficult times come, then we're serving the Lord. He's in, he's in control. When there are cause for what might be discouragements, then we're serving the Lord. He is our strength. He is our source. He's providing for us. Following a Christian leaders convention in a North American city, an analysis was taken of the hotel accounts. And it was discovered that over 60% of the people attending that conference had watched the X-rated movies that were available in the room. We need integrity in our churches. God is looking for men and women of integrity and character. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The key truth in that verse is that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now we know that God is a giver for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gives us much of what we have. Everything that we have, God is the source. God gives to us. But God is also a rewarder now, when we take a special effort to, to seek the Lord on some issue, then he rewards us. See, a reward is different to a gift. A reward is something that is earned. And that verse tells us that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We need to live to the glory of God, not to the praise of men. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The fact is, if we live for the praise of men, we'll be shot down. It'll just be a question of time. But if we live to the glory of God, we live forever. We're fruitful in this life and in the life to come. As we read in 1 Corinthians about the crops, the sowing with wood, wood, hay and stubble and gold and silver and precious stones, we see the contrast between between what will be burned up, the living to men, and what will endure is the living to God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We need to live for Jesus. This verse grips my heart. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. <clears throat> and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. It, it cost Jesus his life to buy each one of us. So what is a you know, what is our response to that? Our response needs to be that, that because he died for each one of us, we need to live for him. We need to live for him. We need to keep to the truth. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need to keep to the truth of the word of God. See, there, there is just one standard of truth, and that's the word of the living God, and we need to keep to that. We need to be accountable to other believers. And accountability takes openness. It takes vulnerability. To go to somebody and say, Brother, would you pray for me? I'm having this problem. 
It could be a problem with lust. It could be a, a problem with financial difficulties. It could be a problem with one of those areas that our that our flesh doesn't want to acknowledge. You know, when people have a concept of what we're like, we don't want to go to them and say, pray for me, I'm having trouble with my thought life. Yet we need to have that accountability and openness. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is deceitful. It, it says to our heart that it doesn't exist. It tries, to, it tries to tell us that it isn't really there. It deceives us into believing that everything is all right. But we have loving brothers and sisters who will come alongside us and put our arm, their arm around us and say, maybe isn't, everything isn't all right. And they'll point out things. And we listen to them and we thank God for them that they saved us from that deception. We need one another in this relationship. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Next, we need to be active in the battle. We need to pray. Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We need to be out witnessing. We need to be sharing our faith in Jesus. We need to have the flag up. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Psalm 107 verse 2. We need to bow the knee before the Saviour. We need to lay the acclaim of men at his feet. You know, it's nice to have a pat on the back, but it, it, it can puff us up with pride. Yeah, we need to bring it to we need to bring it to the Lord. Two Corinthians ten five. Take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The thoughts are in our head, and if our head is disobedient to Christ, then we're in disobedient to Christ. Take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We need to serve others. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So all we've looked at here is what God is doing. What are the elements of sincere faith? What are the elements of God's love? This is what God's doing. This is God's standard. This is God's program. If we want to be part of what God's doing in the world, then this is, this is where we fit in. I told you about David at the university. I uh, was given the assignment of setting up a dark room. And I loved that dark room. <laughs> I'd go in there and turn the lights out and it was dark. You couldn't see a thing. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You'd sit there for 10 minutes and you still couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And what I appreciated about that is it gave me, a, it gave me insight into what it's going to be like before I stand before the judgment seat of Christ is that there's just he and me. There's just the Lord and me. And there's no one else. There's nothing else. There's just us. And that's the way it is now. You know, we look out and we see the world, but really on the inside, it's just the Lord and me. And so I need to keep that perspective of, of am I really living for the Lord? If the love of Christ is not evident in our lives, then we're really out of step with what God is doing. We're out of step as individuals. We're out of step as a church. We'll be ineffective in our community. The charge that God has given us is the charge of love, which issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. I'm going to ask Sherry to come now and share a little. on one side, you're pretty well numb up here. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to John chapter 13. 
34. John chapter 13, 34. A new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, I, I believe this church is a real church that prays. It's a praying church. And we love the Lord. But wouldn't it be wonderful if the new Solid Rock Church was known as a church that loves each other? <clears throat> and that's what really challenges me, is that I will be known as someone who loves other people as Christ loves them. It doesn't start with the church. Like Jeff said, it starts with the individual. We have to individually love the Lord first and then each other. Pastor Jean and Pastor Bennett can encourage you and leave that kind of life before you to love God and to love one another and be an example to you of that. But unless we are doing that personally in our own lives, we cannot serve the body of Christ as a church, as a whole, in that reputation that the Solid Rock Church loves one another. And we are going to be known as Christ's disciples because of that. I'd like for us to look at two things. One, what is love? And the second is how did Jesus love us? When you turn in 1 John 4, 16, you'll find that God is love. That is his character. That is his being. He is not evil. There is not an ounce of bad in him. He is just good. He is love. He is all purity, as Jeff was saying. He is holy. That's our God. That's who he is. To John in Second John chapter one verse five and six, Jesus says, "I ask that you love one another, and this is love that we walk in obedience to His command. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love." So, firstly, what is love? Well, God is love. Secondly, love is obedience. Now, I tell my kids, they'll say they love me. And I'll say, well, I know you love me if you obey me. That's what God's saying to us. He knows we love him if we obey his command. And what is that command? Well, one of them is that we will love one another. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. We saw that God is love. In verses 4 through 8, we're just going to put God's name in there and substitute it for love. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. Now what I want us to do now is to put your name there. I'll put my name there and we'll read it together out loud. And let's see how we do on this test. Of love. Sherry never fails. Whoops. 
Verse 4. Sherry is patient. Sherry is kind. Sherry does not envy. Now you can tell it's getting to me. Sherry does not boast. Sherry is not proud. Sherry is not rude. Sherry is not self-seeking. Sherry is not easily angered. Sherry keeps no record of wrongs. Sherry does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Sherry always protects. Sherry always trusts. Sherry always hopes. Sherry always perseveres. Sherry never fails. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't pass that test. God help me. How does Jesus love? God loves like that. He, he knows what we are. He knows what we're like. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. If I can find it through the flood. Again, the command is that we love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. God is love. Love is that we obey him. The love is 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. How did Jesus love us? Philippians 2, verse 7. <clears throat> Let's start with verse 6. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself of all his heavenly claims, he gave up his heavenly rights. We hold on to who we are or who we know. But will we really be what we are? God knows what we are. He can see inside of us. God looks on the out, on the inside and people look on the outside. We spend so much time on the outside, but it's on the inside that God sees. Jesus had no claims on his heavenly heart. He said, I don't want. Gracious Father, we do thank you that that you're working in this world. We thank you that you're working in the hearts and lives of each one of us. And this morning as we open your word together, we just recognize our need, our desperate need to hear from you. And so that is our prayer, Lord, that as we lift our eyes to Jesus, that you would minister to our hearts through the word of God. So Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. 